what you said about experiencing God's love through his people is really the subject of our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to the New Testament letter of Philippians, the letter of Paul to the Philippians, and you'll find that on page 980 of your church Bibles, the black Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you'd like a copy, just take it and put your name in it. It's yours. And I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Well, Sarah and I are so grateful to uh, you, to the elders, for our time away that we have been able to enjoy, and we've had just some wonderful experiences um, vacation-wise, and I was able to visit my family in Oklahoma a few weeks ago. My mom turned 80, and so um, just thought it was important for her favorite son to show up and <laughs> make an appearance. So, But we had a great time, and uh, also had some study break time to prepare for this fall and this series here uh, that we're starting this morning called Finding Joy. Uh, I read an interesting book on break by a pastor whose name is James Stalker. James Stalker. He lived a hundred years ago. Uh, He was a pastor, a very successful pastor in Scotland. And he was so successful that Yale University invited him uh, to participate in what is still going on to this day, the, the Lyman Beecher Lectureship Series for Preachers. I know that's such a riveting, riveting title for, but that's what's been going on, that's what they call it, uh, and James Stalker was invited uh, for a series of lectures, and in one of his talks, it, 
was on the subject of the secret of a happy and successful ministry. Now that caught my attention. What is the secret of a happy and successful ministry? I mean, what if in your vocation some very successful person was going to give a talk? Here's the secret of a happy and successful whatever that vocation is. Might that get your attention? Well, James Stalker spoke that lecture, and this is what he said. This is the secret. Here it is. Pens out. Paper. When I first settled in a church, I discovered a thing of which nobody had told me and of which I had not anticipated, but which proved a tremendous aid in doing the work of ministry. Here it is. Here's the secret. I fell in love with my congregation. I do not know how otherwise to express it. It was as genuine a blossom of the heart as any which I have ever experienced. It made it easy to do anything for my people. It made it a perfect joy to look them in the face on Sunday morning. I don't know if this is universal, but it should be. Then he says this. I love it. For my part, I like to meet a minister who thinks his own congregation, however small it may be, is the most important one in Christendom and is rather inclined to bore you with its details. When a man thus falls in love with his people, the probability is that something of the same kind happens to them likewise. Just as a wife prefers her own husband to every other man, though surely she does not necessarily suppose him to be the most brilliant specimen in existence. (laughs) So a congregation will generally be found to prefer their own minister, if he's genuine, to every other, although surely not always entertaining the hallucination that he is a paragon of ability. And then he says this, and here's the secret. Thus, to love and to be loved is the secret of a happy and successful ministry. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, to love and to be loved, that's the, that's the secret of life. See? To love with God's love, to receive God's love, that's, there, there it is. There it is. And that really resonated with me um, because, quite frankly, that's how I feel about us. That's how I feel about you and for you, and that's uh, what I feel from you. And my prayer is that our love will grow stronger as we, together, all grow older. That's my prayer. And I mention all this because that's what's going on in our scripture this morning in Philippians 1, 1 through 11. I mean, can you not feel Paul's love for the Philippians? He's fallen in love with this congregation. And 
mean, he says to them in verse uh, 7, you know, I hold you in my heart. And then he says in, in verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. His feelings are deep and powerful and strong for these people. He just feels for them. I mean, he doesn't say that in Galatians chapter 1, does he? My goodness, in Galatians chapter 1, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is really no other gospel at all. I tell you that if I, myself, or an angel from heaven should present to you a gospel that's different from any that you have ever received, let him be eternally condemned. I've had it with you, people. (laughs) That's the greeting in Galatians. That's not this, is it? This is, I yearn for you. I'll hold you in my heart. Wow. I mean, how do you feel that deeply? I mean, those feelings are not the feelings of just any human. That's the feelings of Christ. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. How does that happen? How do you feel the kind of love for others that Jesus feels for them? What, what does it take to love people as Jesus? What, what accounts for that? And I believe that the answer is in our Scripture this morning. It's one word. It's one word. It shows up twice in these verses. It is the word partnership. Partnership. Paul speaks of it in verse 5. Your partnership in the gospel. He speaks of it again in verse 7. I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers. That's partnership. This word partnership, it appears not just twice in these verses, but it appears at least once in every chapter throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians. Why take a look at chapter 2, verse 1, when Paul speaks of their participation, partnership. That's the same word in the Spirit. And then we see it again in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul talks about knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share, that's the word, partnership, may partner in his sufferings. And then once again in chapter 4, verse 15, Paul speaks of the partnership of giving and receiving in terms of financial support. Partnership. That's the word that is on display as a result of Christ's love flowing through them. It shows itself in in partnership. And what kind of partnership? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. Not just any old kind of partnership, but a specific kind of partnership. Oh, by the way, this word, partnership, since the New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, it's that Greek word, koinonia. 
koinonia. Some of your translations will use the word fellowship, uh, which the American church has somewhat diluted into meaning donuts and coffee out in the foyer. No, that's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about, we're talking about through thick and thin partnership. We're talking about community. We're talking about when you hurt, I hurt. What happens to you affects me because we are, we are one. There's this community, this associating. We're in the gospel business together. That deep level of partnership. And what I want us to discover this morning is that Paul, in these verses, teach us that, that here it is, Christ-centered love produces or displays or is evidenced by servant-centered partnership. A servant-centered partnership. That's what kind of partnership that we see here in these opening verses. And what I want us to do is, I want us to, I want us to explore what this servant-centered partnership looks like. What does it look like? Number one, that's question number one. And then number two, how, do, how can we encourage it? You know, how can we stoke it? How can we uh, uh, see it strengthened in our lives? What is servant-centered partnership? And then how can we see it encouraged in our relationships? Well, question number one, what does servant-centered partnership look like in real life? In order to answer that question, we really have to go back and learn how Paul started this congregation in Philippi. And to do that, I want you to look at Acts chapter 16. That's on page 925 of your church Bibles. But what we see in Acts chapter 16 is Paul and the missionary team being called actually in a vision from God. This man from Macedonia, Luke tells us, is calling out to Paul in this vision, come help us, come help us. And so Paul takes the team and brings the gospel into the European continent. And Philippi was the place where the gospel first appeared. Philippi, Philippi, named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And by the time that the apostle Paul came to Philippi in the first century, it already had uh, quite a rich history. Philippi was the site of the conclusive battle of the Roman Civil War when Octavian, or Augustus Caesar, defeated uh, Brutus and Cassius, assassins of Octavian's uncle, Julius Caesar, Octavian defeated them in a decisive battle at Philippi. So Philippi was kind of like their Appomattox courthouse. And the Roman Republic became an empire. And as a result, Octavian, Augustus Caesar, rewarded the faithful, loyal Roman soldiers and officers by granting them citizenship and land. And they were to colonize that area of Philippi. So Luke gets it right on when Luke calls Philippi a leading city of Macedonia and a colony. And those who had the status of citizenship, oh my goodness, they had benefits. You would not believe. Like this, they didn't have to pay taxes to Rome. (laughs) 
Imagine not having to pay taxes to the federal government because you're a citizen. Whoa, I'm in heaven. No, you're just in Rome in the first century. That's what that was. And, and then you could own property and sell property, and then you had certain civil rights. You could appeal to the courts for a loss, uh, civil lawsuits and things that we just kind of take for granted in our citizenship. I mean, only 40% of the city of Philippi consisted of citizens, you see. So there was a clear delineation between the citizens and the non-citizens. Clear class system between the haves and the have-nots. And it was a very honor-based culture. Lines between the elites and non-elites. And that's the culture into which Paul and the missionary team entered when he began preaching the gospel. So Paul, in Acts 16, verse 13, goes to this place outside of Philippi called a place of prayer. Luke just calls it a place of prayer because apparently there was no Hebrew synagogue there. That was Paul's typical custom as a rabbi. He would go to a synagogue and then preach Christ, but there was no a Hebrew synagogue. He went to a place of prayer and met up with uh, women, a group of women who were praying. They were not Hebrew women, but they were worshiping the a Hebrew God, God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. And the Bible says that a certain woman named Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth, which was high-end fabric, think Saks Fifth Avenue or Nordstrom, she had well-heeled clients. And yet her heart was open to the word of God. And Acts 16, 14 says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And she became the first member of the church there. She was the very, she was charter member, number one. She and her family were baptized. In fact, she said, Paul, come, you, you all, she opened her house to Paul and the team, and they stayed. And then the next Sabbath, Paul, on his way to do more preaching and and, and sharing Christ and growing this church on their way to this place of prayer, uh, they encountered this uh, servant girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. And her owners would use her to make money off of her oracles and this practice of the occult. And so she kind of started shadowing Paul and Silas on their way to the place of prayer and, and kind of getting in their personal space. And it's kind of creepy. And the Bible says Paul was annoyed and disturbed by all of this because she kept saying, these men are servants of the Most High, showing you the way to be saved. You must listen to them. These servants of the Most High, showing you the way to be saved. You must listen. Well, that's nice one time, but just come on, you know? And so Paul finally stops and calls the demon in the name of Christ out of her. And then her owners found out. And I mean, they grabbed Paul and Silas by their collars and marched them before the magistrates, the chief executive officers of the city, and throw them before them and say, these Jews, racial slur, these Jews are, 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 are just, just, they're just, they're just messing things up in our town, our, 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 our Roman patriotic town, and they're, they're just advocating customs that just good Romans just aren't going to be about, and you need to do something about it right now. And, you know, the magistrates who are all about PC, they've got this shoot first, ask questions later mentality. So they take Paul and Silas, strip their robes from them, beat them furiously, cane them on the backs, and then incarcerate them in this prison. 
And that's where Paul and Silas were. I mean, that day, you know, how was your day at church? That was his day. And Luke says something was happening at midnight. Now, they're there because they've responded to a vision of God. Sometimes being in God's will is going to put you in an uncomfortable situation. And that's where Paul was. They were in stocks, no food, no water. I mean, welted backs. You know, think about how hard it is to just try to sit up straight, you know, without the back of a chair. I mean, you don't even, Paul didn't have that. He's just on the ground, and he's just this cramped position, and, and no food, no water, and he's hurting. And, and yet, what's going on? Luke tells us, Luke tells us that there in that prison, this sound came out. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I don't know if that's what they sung. But they were singing. Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And here's what I want you to see. Last sentence in verse 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that interesting? I mean, these are hardened prisoners, right? They hadn't exactly been to charm school. Listen, these prisoners are listening to them. You know what that reminds me of? Remember that scene in the Shawshank Redemption when Andy, Duf- Andy Dufresne, character played by Tim Robbins, locks himself in that PA booth and puts on that Italian opera music. Morgan Freeman's character read, he said, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I don't really care, but I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in the great place dared to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. And then the earthquake hit, and they were free. Luke tells us that a divinely orchestrated earthquake shook the foundations, the doors flew open, the shackles were unlocked, everybody was unfastened. They were free. The jailer awakens, he comes in and surveys the situation, and he begins to quake, and he draws his sword because he's responsible for the security of all of those prisoners with his very life. And when he sees that everybody's free, he knows his life is over. He takes his sword out, ready to put himself away honorably. And just as the sword's about ready to thrust into his heart, Paul says, stop, sheathe your sword. We're all here and we're not going anywhere. Now think about that. 
Paul's not even been in there a day, and yet his leadership has commanded that kind of respect. And then the jailer, he comes quaking before Paul, kneels, the warden kneels before the prisoner. I want to know your God. I tell me, how can I be saved? And Paul gives him the God. He gives him Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. And the Bible says that Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him and all in his house. And verse 33 says that jailer that same hour of the night took Paul, washed his wounds, and then Paul baptized him and his family. One preacher put it this way, in the fourth century, one preacher said, the jailer washed Paul of his wounds and then he was washed of his sins. What a great picture. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a night. What a night. Well, the next morning, the magistrates tell the police to tell the jailer, go let those guys go. We're going to drop the charges. So the police show up to the jailer, tell them that he can release Paul and Silas. Jailer says this to Paul and Silas. And right when the jailer said that, Paul and Silas, that's when Paul showed him this. You're you're a citizen? And Paul says, of Rome. Yeah, of Rome. You give this to the magistrates. You give this to the magistrates. They have unlawfully accused us. They have unjustly arrested us and beaten us and thrown us into prison. And we are citizens of his majesty, the empire over Rome. If they want us to leave, you tell them to you just have them get their selves down here <laughs> and release us themselves. And the jailer gave this to the police who gave it to the magistrates. And when they opened it and saw it, they started quaking because they realized they have violated the civil rights of a Roman citizen. And so they kind of come down and it's, you know, they're just stumbling all over themselves. There's been a, we've just been a, there's been a misunderstanding. Mistakes were made. Uh, we we, we, uh, we want to put this behind us. Uh, let's go, can we go forward from here? Uh, would you please leave? Quietly, please. We're sorry. Paul says, no, we're going to hang out with Lydia. We'll leave when we're ready. We're Roman citizens. We haven't done anything. You can't make us leave. And that's how the church started. You say, well, what does that have to do with servant-centered partnership? Ah, here's the question. Why didn't Paul identify himself as a Roman citizen before he was beaten and arrested? And the answer is, that's what it has to do with. 
servant-centered partnership. Think about who was in their church. This, this Nordstrom executive, this demon-possessed girl, or formerly so, this crusty jailer, probably from the military, and yet when Paul addresses this multicultural, multi-ethnic church, he addresses them in Philippians as saints, holy ones, all of us. And had Paul asserted his rights, had he first showed them his credentials, he would have escaped this kind of suffering and treatment. But had he done that, then the Philippian Christians, not all of whom were Roman citizens, they would have clearly gotten the message that Christianity is good for you, but only if you're a Roman citizen. And so Paul, by not asserting his rights, by not playing the Roman citizenship card, by putting himself in a situation where he was virtually guaranteed to be misunderstood and to have to suffer publicly in an honor-based culture, the Philippian church saw that Paul was the real deal and that his primary loyalties You know, the thing that defines me is not going to be my nationality or my race or my vocation or my wealth. What defines me most and first is my relationship with Jesus or what Paul would say later on in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, 20. And so Paul, who had the rights, did not grasp at those rights, but instead waived those rights for the benefit of that church. And he emptied himself to the point of being treated like a slave. And then when put in that dark tomb-like prison as if tasting death itself, later the highest authority in Philippi came and released him, validating and exalting his status as a citizen of the kingdom. And 10 years later, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, would write of another servant who, though he was equal with God, did not assert or grasp or cling to his rights as being the Son of God. Instead, Jesus suffered death by crucifixion, a slave's death, only to have the highest authority in the land exalt him and give him the name that is above all other names. Christ's was servant-centered partnership. And Paul was simply reenacting Easter, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday in this imprisonment. And he was showing the Philippians what servant-centered partnership looks like. That's why Paul would say later in chapter 3, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's what servant-centered partnership looks like. Putting others ahead of yourself, using your strength and putting it at the service of others. Do you know that Philippians is the only letter in which Paul solely identifies himself as a doulos, a servant? Oh, yes, in other letters, he'll identify himself as an apostle and a servant, but only here to this status-conscious culture 
Paul says, I'm just a slave. I'm just a slave. I'm a servant of Christ. And they believed him when he said it. You think people would believe us if we identified ourselves as servants? Would the people in your life think of you as a servant or would they think that you're just too oriented toward power and control? Would they conclude that you care too much about entitlements and rights? Would they say that you care too much about attention and influence? Would they characterize you as a humble servant leader? Would they? Would, would they say that all too often, would they say that all too often you possess the attitude of a king rather than being a servant of the king? Would they see you as being tempted to take too much credit? Would they say that you clearly demonstrate that you know the life God has called you to is not about you? Would they? You say, well, how can I tell if I'm a servant? You know how you can tell? How do you react when you're treated like one? That's how. And clearly, Paul demonstrates the kind of servant leadership. Listen to me. Servant leaders do not inflict pain on those they lead. Servant leaders bear the pain on behalf of those they lead. That's servant leadership, and, and, and that's gospel-centered servanthood. Well, how, how can we possibly encourage that? How, how can we strengthen that? That's question number two. Well, verses 9 through 11 tell us that the way to strengthen such, such gospel-centered, servant-centered leadership and partnership, the way that that gets strengthened is by prayer. And that's what verses 9 through 11 are about. Verses 9 through 11 is simply Paul's prayer for the Philippians. He prays for a growing, knowing, discerning love that leads to a blameless, holy, fruitful life leading up to the day of Christ itself. Here is where Paul prays that their love might grow. That, 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 not that it's a stagnant love, but a growing love. Verses 9 through 11 happen to be one sentence, and it's a crescendoing sentence. Oh my, it's a love that increases and grows and abounds. And not just any old love, not just any old love, but what does Paul say? A discerning love that it may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's a love that's wise. It's a love that reasons. It's a love that seeks to know how to love. It's a love that researches and explores and gets to know the need of the object of this love. It's a love that's discriminatory. It discriminates the difference between tender love and tough love. And why? Why this growing, abounding, increasing, knowing, wise love? So that because of this love, any of their decisions, any of their choices, any of their actions might be, verse 10, not good, not neat, but excellent. I want you to be able to approve what is excellent. I want you to have an excellent life, an excellent vocation. I want you to have an excellent marriage. I want you to have excellent parenting skills. I want 
you to know what's excellent. Paul's not praying for the good. He's praying for the excellent decisions that will lead to a holy life, a blameless life, an excellent life. This is a quality person here. This is the kind of person who when you know, he or she sings at midnight in prison, other prisoners listen. You have, you have someone in your life praying about you to that end? That God would grow your love so that you can be wiser, stronger, better, and holier? A servant who bears fruit for God? A servant filled with the fruit of righteousness who lives such a productive life that the produce of their life is given to God on the day of Christ. Here, here, Jesus, this is yours. This is yours. You see what Paul's doing here? He's not motivating them out of guilt. He's motivating them on the basis of their destiny. The day of Christ when Jesus, the true emperor, will return and remake the heavens and the earth into the new heavens and the new earth and with new bodies we will worship and serve him together. And on that day, Paul wants our love to grow to the point, listen, the goal of life is not so that we can get to the end of life and step into heaven and say, oh, thank God that was over. No. No, the goal is to come to the day of Christ with such an abounding, growing, increasing, discerning love, a love that creates holiness because of lives that have been lived in excellence so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would flow through our lives, that we, that we, that we bring this fruit to God and say, here, Jesus, here, this is from you, and this is for you. You gave me five talents. Here, here's five more. The day of Christ. Man, if you've got someone praying for you on that end, you're rich. And I hope you're praying to that end. If you are, that means you've got a partnership that Paul's talking about here. A united partnership. All appears five times in these 11 verses. Unity. Harmony. A partnership where when the church is addressed, it's addressed first to the saints. And then the elders and deacons are addressed later on. It's a partnership of committed prayer. It's a partnership of family and unity and solidarity and harmony. A servant-centered partnership. John White was a Christian author who said this. There's nothing that convinces people that God exists or that awakens their craving for him like the discovery of Christian brothers and sisters who love one another. The sight of loving unity among Christians arrests the non-Christian, crashes through his intellect, stirs up his conscience, creates a tumult of longing in his heart because he was created to enjoy the very thing you are demonstrating. And that's why James Stalker said, I fell in love with my congregation. And that's why he said, to love and to be loved, that's the secret of life. Amen?